Welcome to Sloney's Talking with Sloney's, a candid conversation with alumni and faculty about the MIT Sloan experience and how it influences what they're doing today. So, what does it mean to be a Sloney? Over the course of this podcast, you'll hear from guests who are making a difference in their community, including our own very important one here at MIT Sloan. Hi, I'm your host, Christopher Reichert, and welcome to Sloney's Talking with Sloney's. I'm with Meher Golshan, a 2019 graduate of Sloan's EMBA program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about you, what you've been up to since Sloan, let me, um, let me step back and just tell everyone a bit about you. So oh, this will quite, be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Golshan is the chair of surgical oncology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's the youngest physician to hold this position. So congratulations. Thank well you. done. He's also the director of the Breast Surgical Oncology Fellowship at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute slash Brigham and Women's Hospital and MGH and an associate professor of surgery at Harvard's um, Harvard Medical School. He received his uh, medical degree from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and, of course, just uh, completed your MBA at Sloan this past May. So you've been quite busy. This has been great. It was a great 20 months. That's right, the EMBA program. So we'll get to that uh, shortly. You're also the author of our 115 peer-reviewed publications and uh, recipient of funding from the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Plus, married and father of two teenage boys. Or is one of them 20 now? And one of them is 20 now, so yeah, getting a little bit older. And he's, uh, he's in college? Yeah, we have one that's a freshman at Brown and the other that's a junior at Tufts, so both uh, pretty close by. All right, excellent, wonderful. Uh, so life is very busy. So your focus um, uh, your, on clinical research is on minimizing the extent of surgery required for women with breast cancer through the use of, okay, here, I'm going to see if, see if I get this right, neoadjuvant therapies, which is to say the administration of therapeutic agents before the main treatment. Correct. And also um, novel intraoperative, another thing I had to Google, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- techniques, which is um, during the operation. Uh, so you, you are introducing different and novel ways of uh, of operating on people. So I guess I have so many questions to ask. Um, I'm firstly, how did you choose this specialty over other sort of medical practice possibilities? So when I went to uh, medical school, I always thought I was going to be some kind of surgeon. My father is a head and neck surgeon who's retired now. Um, but when you go into surgical training, you go into this kind of broad field of general surgery. And it's really just over time that you, then you kind of hone in on one specific area. And breast cancer was the area that I really um, found the most interest in. I think it was pretty interesting in terms of um, it gives you probably the most um, contact with patients compared to a lot of other disease processes, meaning that when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer and 99% of breast cancers and women and occasionally men – you know, they come to you in really their most vulnerable time in their uh, lives. And, you know, you as a surgeon, I like operating, spending time in the operating room. But in the world of breast disease, you actually spend almost as much time outside of the operating room in terms of counseling patients and uh, they're, you know, supporting them and their families during the journey. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now, I'm going to come to that in a minute. I think, um, you know, your training and your personality, presumably, which is what diligence to get through medical school and focus on a particular area of medicine, um, has given you lots of knowledge, um, a deep technical knowledge, a lot of expertise. 
Uh, and with that, I'm sure comes um, the confidence in in your abilities, in your in your problem solving, and helping other people with their their uh, cancer treatments and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, I guess that comes me come, brings me to a question about your journey through that very process yourself, because uh, yeah. you you had cancer as well, right? Yeah. So after I um, finished my uh, first year at uh, Sloan, it was uh, in September. I went in for a colonoscopy, and I was actually diagnosed with colorectal cancer myself. Uh, it was a shock, to say the least, for both me, uh, certainly you know our family, and it was a you know it's it was a very difficult and challenging year for a variety of reasons. But it really gave me a really unique, I think look into how we end up providing care for our patients um, just through the care that I received myself. You know, the the great news is, you know, yes, it was a long year. It was a challenging year, but, you know, I got through it. Our family got through it. um, But it certainly taught me a lot about myself, but more specifically about the healthcare system and things that we think that we do well. Um, We can certainly do a lot better. And and certainly I've, I've learned that in my own practice now that I've Back at back at work, and how does that how has that informed how you well how you how you practice whether it's interacting with patients or even even I mean the whole the whole process. Yeah, so I think it's um, it's like taking a deep breath and slowing down. You know, a lot of what we do when we see a woman with newly diagnosed breast cancer or any form of cancer is you know this is something they want out of their body as soon as possible, and you know the process of, you know, meeting with a surgeon, an oncologist, maybe a radiation oncologist. It's a very overwhelming uh, period of time. And there are a million questions that come into a patient's mind, their family's uh, mind. And I think what I've learned is, you know, is just to slow down and listen um, and not just say what I think they want to hear or that they should hear. Uh, when they're newly diagnosed. And, and an example of that is, you know, whenever they come in to see me with a new diagnosis of breast cancer, you know, I've been doing it for 16 plus years, um, you know, at a, you know, very, um, you know, great institution. We provide world-class care. And I thought I kind of knew it all, but it's really different once you go through it yourself and you see, how it affects not only the individual, but certainly all the people that are around them, whether it's family and friends. So and, it's really changed things. And so the way you talked, we talked earlier about how you, you're bringing in sort of non, uh, so novel approaches to yeah. it. So that's the, you know, the, the, the therapeutic agents before right. the treatment. Uh, is that something that you um, have, I mean, how, how is your illness and, and your process of, of being treated yeah. and also, uh, how how has that affected the way you're looking at your the way you treat your patients? Yeah, so it's um, interesting. So some a lot of the research that I was uh, I was doing and I'm continuing to do this neoadjuvant therapy or minimizing uh, the extent of surgery is kind of almost the is counterintuitive in terms of I'm a surgeon I make my living by operating and you know whether it's doing um, surgery or you know seeing patients in clinic. Um, and then getting them to the operating room. But what we've learned is that we tend to um, sometimes do a little bit too much surgery and that it is really should be tailored to that individual's tumor and cancer and specifically, you know, to a lot of the things that they, uh, expectations that they have uh, afterwards. And it's not, you know, one shoe fits all in terms of uh, surgical treatment. And I think the original work that I had done, you know, 
kind of made a lot of surgeons feel uneasy. I mean, that's our livelihood is to be spending time in the operating room, yet a lot of what I'm doing is saying that we're actually doing this a little bit too much, and in certain cases, a lot too much. And, um, you know, we have to certainly take our time to answer those questions, and usually that comes through clinical trials. Um, And there are now a lot of them that are underway saying that there are certain women who may not need surgery or need a much lesser uh, form of surgery. Interesting. I was thinking about all the, you know, the business cases that we study uh, at business school. And, um, you know, you think about how organizations uh, get caught up in their day-to-day or current way of doing business. And and I keep thinking about the time when when GM said, you know, we're in the muscle car business. We're in the internal (laughs) combustion engine business. We are there to make the, you know, move steel kind of thing. Correct. As opposed to thinking that they're actually a transportation company and stepping back and saying, wait a minute, it doesn't really matter if it's internal combustion or heavy metal or V8 or it's just really a transportation, you know, challenge that we are a part of. And so we're thinking about what you just said about um, surgeons thinking that they need to be in the operating room performing surgeries uh, as opposed to thinking about they're there to provide health care solutions to people yeah. um, and how that might uh, change how you how, well, I guess the whole medical profession might think about you know, the role of the individual surgeons or pre-care or post-care people in the whole operation. Correct. And again, a, a lot of what the... Um uh, pharmaceutical companies are, you know, they're developing new drugs that are doing wonderful things and, you know, making either the surgery easier or some um, cases not needing uh, to do surgery. Yet, you know, a lot of their emphasis also is on sometimes, you know, finding out how long you need the duration of treatment. And certainly if you give a drug longer, it's going to downstream effects is it's going to help that company's bottom line. And sometimes that, you know, having that discussion with them is uncomfortable that maybe we should be testing a shorter duration versus a longer duration uh, of of treatment. And again, a lot of these um, conversations that we're having are difficult. They're difficult for my colleagues in the medical field and certainly um, colleagues that are outside of medicine um, providing us with a lot of the, um, you know, kind of exciting breakthroughs that we do see in uh, cancer treatment. So my perception of the training that goes into mm-hmm. becoming a doctor of, of sort of any stripe is that you there is um, a lot of knowledge that's that's uncertainty maybe of knowing the answer yeah. right as part of it. But I guess what I'm hearing is that really the reality is that that really it is it, there's a lot of more unknown than known. I I agree a hundred percent. And the way I think the easiest way to answer that is that. Breast cancer still exists. There will be 250,000 women that will be diagnosed in the U.S. this year, about 2.5 million women worldwide. For all the wonderful, you know, care that we've been providing, you know, all the, you know, philanthropic support that we get, um, support that we get from the National Institutes of Health and other organizations, uh, breast cancer is still there. Um, It still requires um, treatment. We haven't been able to certainly prevent breast cancer uh, we've done a better job of uh, treating it, yet women continue to um, develop it, and we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I think about my um, undergraduate education, undergraduate education, which was in the classics, and some of the things that we read uh, were, uh, particularly in the medical area, hilariously misguided. Yeah. You know, thinking about the, the body has so much heat, and you have to let the heat out, or yeah. bloodletting, or yeah. you know, and and what was interesting about it was that uh, you know they were convinced that this was the way that medical treatment leeches Correct. and all the rest of it. Now, certainly, we've come a long, long yes. way from that, right? Yeah. But um, I think it's it's telling that 
what you just said really reveals the complexity of the human body is yeah. that there is still so much that's unknown. And I think, and, and as, so as a doctor, I guess you manage that, right? You manage what you know and what you don't know and how you relate it to patients. We do, but we don't necessarily always do it um, in the best way because, again, often patients will come to us and they want to know that you are the expert. Exactly. You're going to be able to give them all the answers. And I think some of our training kind of pushes us that into that direction. But occasionally you'll have to say, we just don't know. And even when I was diagnosed, it was one of those, you know, things that was kind of hard to hear is that, you know, we're going to start this treatment and we think it's going to work, but we won't know until we start it. And, um, you know, hearing that you don't know and you're not sure, you know, doesn't always exude a lot of confidence, but it's sometimes the truth and it's, um, you know, the way you give that information to that, you know, to that patient, to their family. And I think those are a lot of the nuances that, you know, again, I thought I had all the answers to. And certainly now I've um, spent a lot of time reflecting on it. And, you know, just the patients I saw, you know, yesterday in clinic or that I'm going to be operating on tomorrow morning, you know, my approach to them is uh, very different than it was in the past. Technically, I may be doing the same thing, but my conversations with them um, are very different. Much more empathic, I imagine, right? As them as a human Absolutely. dealing with uncertainty. And not just, you know, how you know where is the next source of, you know, revenue coming for our hospital system? Why can't we see more patients, um, you know, do more operations and, and, and cases? And, you know, I certainly see that aspect of things. But at the same time, you know, they're, again, coming to us at this really difficult and challenging time. And just spending the time in terms of listening to them, um, you know, answering their questions. And in fact, I almost sometimes now stay so long as that they're like kicking me out of the room. Like, we're done with you. We've gotten all our questions answered as opposed to, you know, jumping up and rushing to thinking that there's three other people that need to be seen down the hallway. And I think about the, um, you know, this this constant discussion that we have in, in this country about the healthcare system. Correct. And, you know, we compare it to other countries, how they're handling it, whether yeah. it's nationalized or whatnot. You know, then, and then the conversation turns around to that we have the best healthcare, you know, systems in, in, in the world because, you know, we have the best schools and we have the best whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then there's the economics of it, right? And, yeah. I, and, I, and I've been thinking that the, because there are so many uncertainties in that we don't know about how to solve health uh, issues. Correct. That putting it on a the same sort of conversation level as how do we solve a known economic problem, yeah. right? We can be more efficient building, right. you know, cars or widgets yeah. or whatnot. Yeah. But we there because there's so much unknown in the health uh, care industry that maybe it's not solvable on that level, that, that, that the, the notion of rising costs Correct. is built in to the fact Correct. that we just don't understand as much as we need to. Uh, we don't understand as much as we need to, and... Um Again, the, you know, we may solve one specific area of, um, you know, a disease process or find an antibiotic that'll take care of, you know, an infection, but there are many new ones that'll come into place or that there'll be a resistance that'll form to that answer that we thought that we had. And we have to start thinking of new ways to do that. And that obviously requires a lot of uh, research, a lot of, you know, R&D and investment in it. And, um, and often that leads to increase in healthcare costs. Right. See here in the US. And is that one of the reasons? How did you decide to go to business school and, and then and Sloan eventually? Yeah, that was a, a very interesting question. I actually thought about it a couple of years before I started the program in uh, 2017. Um, 
And I think this, I alluded to this a little bit before, was that, you know, a lot of what we do is, you know, revenue stream. How many patients that we end up seeing in clinic? You know, how many operations that I do each year? Where are we going to find the next source of patients? Is it through, um, you know, a different part of the region? Or, you know, should we be investing in uh, our international oncology programs and bringing, you know, high net worth individuals from, you know, Gulf states or from uh, China? And to me, I work for a non-for-profit, yet so much, of, so many of our conversations revolved around uh, money, which was uncomfortable. But at the same time, if I'm going to have a voice at the table when we were having those discussions, I wanted to have a little bit of that background to be able to understand, you know, some of that decision making um, from the financial aspect. And I think really that first year of school, the you know, the accounting and financial management really. Um, helped answer those questions because a lot of times doctors are invited to these uh, to these meetings where those discussions happen, but we're almost kind of pushed to the side and you know just told like you know this is what we're going to end up doing and you know when they do show us numbers and the financials, many of us just didn't have the background to understand it. So I really went into it really to understand the numbers. But it was like really during that second year, you know, where you learn a lot of the skills in terms of, um, you know, interacting uh, with people and, and you know, how systems are set up and, uh, you know, a lot of the dynamics that occur in uh, institutions that I ended up learning, I, I think, just as much as I did the numbers-wise. And then on top of that, I was diagnosed with cancer and I was in the middle of treatment. So it was really a, a kind of a very personal experience in the middle of all of this. Absolutely. So which uh, – do you have any favorite Sloan class or memory that you – yeah, I mean, there there are so many. I mean, like, you know, I, I still look back to that, you know, first day when you walk into, um, you know, those introduction uh, sessions and, and lectures and you just see all those, you know, faces, uh, you know, in the room. And, and now I know every one of those faces. I know all the names. You know, I got to certainly know some of the people in our class a lot more closely uh, than others. But I can tell you that, you know, every one of them are absolutely amazing Uh people and individuals and, and families. And I just, you know, love being able to connect with them. Professors, you know, again, the way they teach is so different than like the lectures that I give at conferences or, you know, when I'm teaching medical students, we're much more kind of regimented in the, you know, our slides need to look like this. The font needs to be this, you know, our presentation style is, uh, is very regimented, but it was so much more free flowing yet there was, obviously a very detailed agenda and what we needed to cover, um, yet they're able to do it in a style that, um, you know, it's pretty mesmerizing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, any, any do-overs that you'd want to go back and... Uh, I don't know about do-overs, but I think, you know, these uh, elective weeks that we're still uh, offered are just, you know, great opportunities to, to kind of hone your skills on or look at things that you just didn't spend enough time on. And again, that second year, I was pretty sick. So I was actually coming into class uh, on chemotherapy, I actually brought a pump in uh, and was getting chemotherapy. So there were times where I would just like my body just couldn't take it and I'd have to get up and take a, a nap and not in class. They actually have prayer and meditation rooms, believe it or not, in Sloan that um, you get to you. I walk by them a thousand times and never knew they existed, but um, they're on each floor and I would bring a blanket and a pillow and take a, 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 take a nap and the, you know, come back a little bit stronger for the second half of uh, class. So I think I missed out a little bit uh, on it just because of my health um, during the time. But at the same time, uh, coming into school and class was a way of getting away from um, 
you know, the trials of dealing with the disease process. I was treated at the same place I work, so everything revolved around the hospital and care providers. My job did, my treatment did. So coming to Sloan was a, a kind of a special place. A break from yeah. that, right? Yeah. Did you uh, did in as part of your your illness? Did you did you turn to religion at all to to help you through any of that? Oh yeah. So well, when I say I use the prayer and meditation rooms, I didn't actually pray in those sure, rooms. Although sure. I did see people pray, and I actually got to meet a lot of very uh, you know very great people that use those rooms for a variety of uh, reasons. I think I was one of the few that actually took a nap in uh, uh, in uh, in those rooms, but. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, a lot of our friends who strongly do feel, you know, religious would, you know, tell us, you know, tell me or my family, you know, we're praying for you or inshallah, everything is going to go well and, you know, whatever their um, religion um, was. And, you know, at the beginning, I, I, I don't know if I dismissed it, but I just didn't really, you know, take it to heart. But this is you know, it's very important for a really large swath of our, uh, you know, population of this country and around the world. And I, I can't say that I, like, you know, decided to take on religion, but I'm very, very, you know, understanding of those that do. And I am sure those, you know, those prayers and thoughts were super helpful in helping me get through this. Yeah. And I guess I was, the reason I mentioned it is because I think that, you know, there's a the tension between sort of secular and science-based and all of that, and then there's more spiritual side. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but yeah. there's certainly a tension there. And I there wondered is. if that if that line moved for you at all. It probably moved a, a little bit. Um, and again, I think I am a little bit more open to, you know, listening to others who, you know, have a much stronger um you know, basis in the, in their in their faith and in their religion, and you know, I really respect it. And again, it didn't take me to go to church or to the synagogue or to the mosque, uh, you know, on a regular basis. But you know, a few of my friends told me, you know, just to come into church just as a peaceful place to to reflect and listen on. And I think it's an it was an absolutely wonderful thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I um, I'm I'm not particularly religious in a, in a sort of formal sense, yeah. but I went to. Um, Assisi in Italy, yeah. and there—that's a very spiritual yes. place. And there, and also, there are no cars throughout this entire hillside village. There are no cars, which in and of itself creates a peace yeah. and a spirituality that it, that it's it, it gets into you in a way. That I, I I turned. I said, "Wow, this! I think this is there's maybe something in here beyond yeah. the organized religious, the sermons and the rituals and whatnot. Just yeah. being yeah. slowing down and and taking a bit more time as you as you go through." Your day or your life. Your oh, profession. absolutely. And um, again, you know, I, I wrote a little bit about this, and you know, I, you know, we lived in our house for you know, over, you know, over a decade, and then in Newton for sixteen plus years. But I can say that you know, like I really never watched the lights that came into our house during the course of the day, or the leaves changing. You know, in, in the fall, certainly, you know, we see the bunch of leaves that we needed to rake or you know have cleaned up. Uh, but I just never saw that change. And uh, while I was um, sick and I had to take some time off from work, I really got to see so much more of life that I just let, you know, blow by each day and um, just take, as you said, take it, uh, things maybe slowed down. And what uh, what part did um, your partner play in your decision to go back to business school or, uh, or so add yeah, to your schedule? Yeah. No, absolutely. So, you know, first of all, I you know, none of, 
me getting through the cancer treatment, certainly, you know, supporting me through, um, uh, you know, through uh, Sloan's experience. Um, that's all because of my wife and, you know, um, two wonderful, amazing kids. Um, you know, like during my uh, second year when I was diagnosed and in school and going through all this um, pretty harsh treatment for the type of cancer that I had, you know, I, when my younger son was a senior in high school, so he was going through the whole admissions process and we had, you know, were pretty checked out. Certainly I was. Yet my wife, um, you know, full-time breast radiologist at Harvard, um, you know, running the household, keeping me, you know, um, on schedule with my treatment, um, you know, driving me to um, classes when I couldn't drive myself. Um, absolutely no way I would have been able to do it without her. So what's what's your definition of success now? I know when you started, maybe as you went through medical school and, yeah, and have been the youngest physician yeah. and whatnot, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, not taking things for uh, granted um, as much anymore. Certainly, um, you know, my, I was fortunate that my treatment was successful, but it really did take a lot out of me. And now that I'm back, I've decided, you know, to slow things down a little bit. You know, the number of patients that I used to see, um, you know, the amount of time I spent into the operating room, you know, I'd rather spend a little bit more time you know, individually with those patients and maybe not see as many as I did before and certainly making it a priority um, to be around for, you know, for our family, which, you know, was always very important. But knowing that, you know, I'm not bulletproof and life is uh, finite, you never thought, like, I never thought in, you know, in my 40s that I'd be dealing with uh, with a um, with a serious cancer, and um, it really kind of gives you perspective on how you want to move forward. So do you have any um, parting advice for prospective Sloanies or someone considering going to back to school? I can tell you that my classmates, the staff, the MBA staff, the, um, the professors were amongst the most empathetic people that I've ever had the privilege of uh, working with. And in fact, I've, you know, I've told, you know, my wife and friends and children said, you know, my classmates just cared about me and us so much and um, we'll never be able to thank them uh, for, for, for all the support that they've given and they continue and that they, they continue to give. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mira Golshan, for coming in today to talk to us uh, on Sloney's Talking with Sloney's. Uh, thanks for having me on this warm, balmy <laughs> Boston <laughs> December December. Uh, December day. Here, it's here. great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Sloney's Talking with Sloney's is produced by the Office of External Relations at MIT Sloan School of Management. You can subscribe to this podcast by visiting our website, mitsloan.mit.edu slash alumni or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Support for this podcast comes in part from the Sloan Annual Fund, which provides essential, flexible funding to ensure that our community can pursue excellence. Make your gift today by visiting giving.mit.edu slash Sloan. To support this show, or if you have an idea for a topic or a guest you think we should feature, drop us a note at sloanalumni at mit.edu.